You are listening to ARD Healthcare. I am your host Anirban. You can expect deep, insightful conversations with stakeholders from clinical, technical, industrial and regulatory affairs about the bottlenecks of bringing AI to scale up access to healthcare at the planetary scale. I thank the Mikhai Society and Hessian AI for supporting the podcast. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. All right. So, welcome to the eighth season of AI Ready Healthcare. It's a sunny day here in Darmstadt. I'm your host, Anirban. It is a pleasure to welcome Professor Rafael Schnittmann. Director of the Artwork Center for Biomedical Engineering at the University of Bern, Switzerland. Raphael is interested in computational vision, probabilistic methods, statistical learning applied to applications in medical imaging and surgery. We will hear more about his broad range of activities today. But beyond his research excellence, I know Raphael for a long time. And I know him as one of the kindest people within the Mikhai community. It's probably the days when I was a postdoc and he was an early career PI when we know from which time we know each other. And he even now invariably asks me about the research progress we are making uh, whenever we meet in person in conferences. And yeah, it's been going on for some time. So I'm really, really happy to have you here today and welcome to the podcast, Raphael. Thanks for having me. It's uh, really a pleasure. Yeah, indeed. Uh, trying to think back at the beginning of when we, when we first caught up. Uh, yeah, it's funny. It's uh, better maybe not to think of the number of years that go by. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely very nice. Very nice. Thank you again for having me. Yeah, no, of course. That's really something that uh, I cherished to talk to you across many different research projects that you are doing across surgery and stuff. But for all our listeners, maybe if you just give us an insight of your journey, your becoming, how you became the current director of our talk okay. center. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so so I started actually in a, in a field which was a somewhat different. I, I started in psychology and uh, I was interested in the cognitive aspects of, of psychology. So understanding your human perception uh, was really actually uh, something I was really fascinated about when I started my education. And then I was introduced to, to this whole aspect of uh, artificial vision and, and, and computer vision and thought, wow, this is, this is so exciting and, and, and cool and magical and mystical at the same time. And uh, so I got into that, and and uh, one thing led to another, doing more, you know, programming and computer science, and yeah, and then spent some time in in Canada and Vancouver, and then in the U.S. and Baltimore, and then ultimately found my way here in Bern, uh, going from labs that were pure computer vision labs to labs that were um, more medical oriented with uh, clinical focuses. And so, yeah, that was. Uh, I was always interested in in both the theory and the applications of of algorithmics. Uh, yeah, and and uh, one thing led to another, and today uh, I'm in Bern. Yeah, 
That's amazing. So just out of curiosity, so are you originally from Switzerland or you are from? So, so I, uh, I grew up in Switzerland, uh, originally from France. But uh, but now I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm Swiss. Yeah, you can you can put it that way. I've been here long enough to say that. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. And how many languages do you speak? Three. Oh, I, I'm uh, I'm the low end of the national uh, average, I think. But I, I'm 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 at three right now. So yes, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really amazing. You can hold conversation across three different languages. That, that's really not something that common. So I guess you already talked about the director position that you currently are. And I mean, okay, being a PI is busy writing grants, managing PhDs, being a director is a whole different beast. So you have a busy schedule to put it mindly. So what's something important to your daily routine that you currently realize but you just feel that you should have started sooner oh that's a good question so when you get into let's say administrative roles like a directorship or or leading large groups of people and you're still interested in doing uh, research uh, day-to-day research not everyone is like that, but when you, if you still are interested, I think what's really important, and, and I wish I had done this maybe sooner, is understanding how to use a structure within your organization or how to set up your structure in order to make uh, that science, to, to make the science, uh, you know, appear every day uh, in a consistent way without it somehow falling into the into the, the the dark areas of your life where 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 you just get swamped with things that have nothing to do with science and and I think that that's something a version of myself of the future would have wanted to hear uh, uh, some time ago yeah yeah that that's really a tricky thing right what you are saying is that as a director you have so many other jobs that it's almost like you can easily make an excuse to yourself that my day is full and I will do research when I find time, but you will never find that time. So really creating those slots, which are only for research is, is really a difficult thing. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's, that's the trick. You, you, you can't, you have to avoid putting it as a, I'll do the research when, when I'm done with this admin stuff. And the reality is that it's never done. There's always some other fire to put out or something else that's quite important. But you you gotta you gotta keep those things, you know, the whole picture and keep in mind why why we choose this career, right? So so I think that's really important. Yeah. So since you are leading uh, the Art Arc Center, which at least within the community of like the medical imaging or those who work on the image-guided surgery, it's quite famous. It's one of the leading centers across the across the world, definitely in Europe. So can you just give us maybe a sort of overview of the kind of research that is happening within the art org center and maybe put your research into the context of that bigger picture yeah so so the center uh, so the art org center is a uh, is something that's 15 years old and we're actually we're we're celebrating our 15 year anniversary and the idea at the time was to have a 
a biomedical engineering center that's embedded in a medical faculty. So, so the center is, is part of a medical faculty attached to a university hospital. So we're on the hospital campus. And, and the spectrum of, of research that's ongoing isn't so much in the sense of uh, engineering verticals that you would typically see in engineering schools, where you have like uh, electrical engineering or, 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 or mechanical engineering and so on, but rather they're horizontals that are clinical. So every group at Achtog is linked to a clinical department and every group focuses on unmet clinical needs of that particular clinical department in trying to engineer, engineer solutions that are uh, fit for the future, fit for patients and healthcare systems. So that can range from cardiovascular issues to brain, to eyes, to ears, and so on. So it's a very organ-focused as opposed to technology-focused. And that brings an interesting dynamic in the kinds of research that goes on, uh, the kinds of overlap that we have between different groups and different uh, uh, anatomies, let's put it that way. And, uh, and so in my, in my context, I, I came out in the, uh, I, I focus mainly on eyes. So, so that was a big area that I've worked on uh, for since my PhD, in fact. And so in that context, I, I, I'm interested a lot or have been interested a lot in uh, topics related to diagnostics, but also interventions in eye care and also looking more broadly. But, but those have, that's really been a, a focus area of, of uh, at least the clinical work that I've been doing. Yeah, that sounds like a very different approach to a center style research instead of the more traditional university style research where, you, as you mentioned, you have this electrical engineering, computer science department, and then the department has faculties. And that's probably, in a way, that's great for teaching in the more traditional sense, but it has its problem if you are trying to do highly interdisciplinary research that are close to closer to translation. So that way, uh, I guess the setup you are describing sounds quite exciting. And you already mentioned your focus uh, is rather on eye surgery. So I will ask you the question about eye surgeries, of course, but this is also something that I wanted to ask you simply because by now, you guys have defined the term surgical data science and you wrote this paper. So far, I think I asked Lena, Stephanie, uh, Daniel, uh, Dan Stoyanov, and then <laughs> Dan Hashimoto. So many different people who has given their understanding of what they meant by surgical data science. So what your perspective is in terms of surgical data science and maybe how in particular, eye surgery is situated in that context. Yeah, yeah no, what, what is data science and for, for surgical data science? For me, it's about the analytical understanding of surgery and really treating it as data in the broadest possible way. From the obvious candidates, like from image data, but also from, from the, let's say, softer uh, softer aspects of uh, maybe perception, human perception, education, and so on. So there are many aspects about data science and data coming from from surgery, and it's really the science of of exploiting that data um, in a in a very comprehensive way. Are there any uniqueness to eye surgery? That's a good question. I think eye eye care presents a very different 
set of conditions or boundary conditions compared to, let's say, a visceral surgery style approaches. And that's that um, by and large, you, you, you can view directly the anatomy. You don't typically have, uns you know, you don't have you, you see the back of the eye or the front of the eye. Uh, uh, you don't have a, an organ in between uh, your, your structure. So you always have, and more or less always have line of sight. So the, that, that really means that uh, localization of where you are with respect to pre-op data is not so much of an issue. The kind of real goal of the future, and this is where the field is primarily going to, is how do you marry together uh, robotics, so surgical robotics and eye care, with with data science approaches of uh, both for control, both for navigation, both for accuracy improvements, hand tremors or limit or human factor limitations is a major issue in eye care. There's a lot of promise for delivering therapeutics at very targeted locations with micron level precision. And you just can't do that by holding an instrument, even if you're an excellent, excellent surgeon. And so I think that's kind of the unique aspect about uh, eye surgery. And, uh, and so data science, most of the data science questions uh, with respect to eye surgery, be it for cataract surgery or for retinal surgery, so the back of the eye, have to do with precision, are mainly about precision and speed, as opposed to have we identified the right structure we're going to touch. This kind of thing is is more obvious to the surgeons because they have line of sight. Yeah, that, that sounds like a great summary, both of the surgical data science as analytical understanding, as well the particular problems of eye surgery where Maybe there are no domain, like no organs in between, but you still have to solve the high precision problem, high precision of a different level compared to something like laparoscopic cholecystectomy, where yeah. a lot of the, the typical surgical data science papers are written about. So I guess before I come to the eye surgery part, you mentioned something about analytical understanding beyond the imaging data. And there, like you are talking about human perception and I, I don't know, a sort of data science understanding of that. Can you give us some examples of what type of data uh, might be interesting in that case? And maybe if you have some yep. background there. So, so um, actually, this actually mainly came out of uh, this thinking or my thinking really came out of um, the work that we have been doing in diagnostics and eye care where it became increasingly clear that um, while the clinical community does a really exciting work in trying to find biomarkers or predictors of disease progression in the eye and so on, it also became very clear that a lot of those markers that people relied on, they had huge variance in understanding and perception. And, uh, and so, you know, is an apple an apple kind of problem. and and that uh, that persisted uh, not just on the diagnostic side, where where we did a lot of work in that space, but also in the interventions, understanding, you know, how precise do we need to be? That question in eye care for for retinal surgery is really undefined, you know. So so we're it's like we're marching towards a goal, but that goalpost isn't really defined for everyone in the same way. 
And um, and so that makes things quite difficult. And finding consensus really uh, means talking to clinicians and getting consensus from clinicians as well. And the holy grails, of course, are almost a chicken and egg problem in this space because you want to prove that what you're doing is is makes sense and is the right thing to do. But the evidence to see that this is what we want to do, you need to build the instrument first. So it's this weird uh, ecosystem in a way of, are we building this instrument to prove something or are we proving something to build the instrument? And uh, so that's kind of a unique aspect of what's going on uh, a little bit in, in, in eye care. But uh, but it's 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 been it's been entertaining by by all means. So, I mean, since we are talking about data science, and you already mentioned about the high precision, faster execution, that sort of requirements that are specific to the eye surgery and also of the therapeutic delivery. But if we are really talking about the data itself, I mean, getting hold of publicly available data set is always a challenge. And of course, the more specialized things that are, of course, much more difficult, but we have been looking at something which I would thought before getting into is the most common thing, like the cataract surgery, like probably all of our listeners know someone in the family, in the friend circle who has gone through the procedure. But if you really look at the publicly available data sets that are ready, AI ready, so to say, you will find very few. And that's about it. So how do you sort of go ahead about your clinical questions that has data at the center of the problem? So I think I think I'm happy you bring up cataract surgery because it's a it's a very interesting case. So cataract surgery, I think it's one of the most common surgeries in the world. It's deemed a relatively easy surgery from the clinical point of view. It's a, a good clinician will do it in 15 minutes and and done. Low rates of complications. So in general, it's a, a good starting ground. The question is why why do we want to build AI methods that even deal with this data? And that actually isn't so clear because there's no real reason to do that. Uh, you know, clinicians do this very well. The real problem is we don't have enough surgeons to do it. So that that's the, the main limiting factor. The question of what is the di- data science problem behind it, that you really have to dig. And I think that's one of the main drivers why you don't see so much AI-ready data sets in this space, because it's unclear why to do that. Unlike, uh, I don't know, neuroimaging, where where there the questions are, are are fundamentally clear. In cataract, it's actually what is the real unmet clinical need, and what is its driver? What is AI trying to solve? That's those are those are difficult questions. You really have to look at the healthcare systems to understand what is the what is the added value of AI in that space. And some will argue one way and others uh, another. Uh, I won't position myself on it right now, but um, I think it's it's a I think that's that's one of the the things with our field and our community that I, I feel we we need to be a little bit more careful in really dedicating our time on problems that we think 
actually matter and and have an impact to matter yeah yeah that that's a great point you mentioned because a lot of the let's say papers in the mikhai community so to say is more about let's say trying out algorithmic parts technical parts without really asking the question what is the overall impact let's say in the best case if it reaches us very high accuracy etc that you are looking for then what like what really the value that that you can think of adding in this case i guess because you mentioned uh, of the cataract surgery and maybe the less number of surgeons out there maybe there are some need in terms of faster training of new surgeons and they are probably when they are practicing some of these skills with with i don't know with phantoms and stuff like that maybe ai has some uh, yeah so i i think that's actually one of the the places where in the context of cataract where where ai has a, a role to play and and that's the training of the next generation or the vol- an increase in volume in, in in people who can deliver uh, cataract surgeries i think that's one area where where ai can make a difference in the intervention itself that's really difficult to say but i think in training um and uh and uh and education i think there it makes a lot of sense so and i think that that's something where you know that's not a new idea we we know people have been working on cataract simulators and so on and and doing very nice work in that space so i think uh, i think that that that's absolutely true yeah so i guess the other part of my question where i started with is that but my point was really that of course that there is data scarcity even for something which is as very often done and then when you are talking about really very high precision procedures where you need to have a targeted drug delivery for example you mentioned i am guessing there is not much public data that is out there and when you are doing your research how do you really negotiate through this data barrier yeah no that's a good question so yeah the question of so, so there the data scarcity or the data problem uh there there are many aspects to them and i think it, they're similar across many fields one is just do you have enough cases right and two are they are they diverse enough or are your inclusion and exclusion criteria specific enough for answering a relevant question from the clinical end um so i think that presents a set of challenges then the whole uh legal aspects and data security aspects adds a whole different dimension although i have to say video data of of eye care isn't isn't the most obvious thing that that you need to it's difficult how to anonymize and what would you even anonymize but um but of course that that's also an issue an interest an interesting point for me you know given where where i work the center i'm in the first thing is understanding what's the unmet clinical need and then building outward from that point how many cases do we have locally how many cases do we have in europe how many cases do we have in in the world and if those numbers oh if or at least i what i typically look is a triangle right so those are two of the axes are the amounts the unmet need and three the the intended solution so if the intended solution 
you know, doesn't line up with the number of cases and the unmet need, then it's not worth investigating. And I think it's important to keep these kinds of three aspects in mind when when looking at that. But in the event that everything is there, what I've found in the past is that everything works out after because all the stakeholders understand that it's a win-win you know, across the board from why they participate in data, who would get what and in what way and so on. So I think as soon as the, uh, let's say the values are aligned, then things work out. The trick is finding an unmet need that uh, allows for 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 these settings. Yeah, that that's really a great point you are talking about, right? That thinking beyond what somebody just presented as another research project. So let's go along gung-ho and see what's there, but more thinking yeah. about the intended solution, what is the unmet need, whether we have enough diversity of the data. So those are really crucial points. I mean, and, and I mean, I think, but I think um, even even things like, like you mentioned at Mikai or other conferences, uh, you know, even though some of these papers might not have an obvious, you know, intended use, I think they still bring value in the in the on the scientific aspect. The development of a method in a space can be informative in many ways. So, you know, and, and by far, but for sure, you know, people in my group, uh, you know, some of the work I've done has fallen purview to that as well, where we've developed things just to try it out and see without it having a real future after. Uh, and I think that's just part of part of our cycles, a part of our processes. You know, it's it's part of academic life. It's valued to the extent that it's valued. But what I feel today is that it's no longer the driver that I had before. Uh, I think that's the the at least what what has changed over the years is that it's becoming less uh, a focus as opposed to okay, how do we move beyond the the next paper and the next algorithm? Where is this going? Yeah, that that's I guess. Part of the maturity. <laughs> of Quote unquote maturity, yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But the other part of the data that I really wanted to discuss with you is the annotation itself. Yep. And I know in the earlier uh, days when I used to talk with you pre-pandemic in conferences, et cetera, you are quite involved in the generic direction of active learning, so to say, but more about the, how to say, efficient annotation beyond the typical way we are doing it. And I believe you also are involved in organizing some Mikhai workshops around that. So can you give us an overview of the research? What were the open problems and what are let's say your insights from yeah. that direction? Yeah. No. Yeah. So. So. Um. Yeah. I'd been working on active learning for for quite a while, from different perspectives actually. Uh. Up until I don't know a few years ago, and yeah, we ran uh, with a number of people. What was a very successful workshop on on uh, called labels that dealt with all the issues of annotations and and the headaches that you could get from from annotations and um and it was really exciting uh, we had different speakers and people presented exciting work the you know the 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 way i see it today is that um getting good annotations remains extremely difficult despite 
all the really cool tools and algorithms people have done. Um, and that's in large part because finding, I'd say, general frameworks that really scale to different types of problems, different so applications, different uh, machine learning problems um, is really difficult. So for instance, if you go, if you take a standard active learning algorithm to differentiate, you know, a, a model that differentiates a, a tool from the background, let's say a, an object detector, basically, then that, that, that will do pretty well. You, you have many methods that will do really well, but the moment that you go into a multi-class problem, active learning typically is useless by and large. There are papers that do a bit, but overall, random sampling is going to do just as well. And it's kind of depressing to think that we can't really move beyond that. And it's theoretically, the theory is difficult to understand what's happening. Deep learning has only made that more complicated because the feature space is moving at the same time as the boundary space. So things got really complicated and hard. And solutions that would work well for object detection or image classification typically wouldn't do uh, well for image segmentation. So it's just a really hard space. And I think the, so there's a little bit of a, this difficulty has transpired over the last decade or so. There are still papers, people still work at it. We we still work on it. We, we look at methods in that space still today. But I think also what we've learned over the last two, two well, a year now is that volume is more important than, or at least plays a really big role than quantity. And, uh, and this is coming from everything we've seen from transformers and, and large language models is that if you scale your model big enough with enough data, it starts to understand things in a very smart way and, and, and concepts can be transferred over. Um, so it puts into question what is really, you know, what, how, how much of a headache do you really need to, um, to give yourself if you want to build a detector or something, um, given these extremely well-performing models that we are seeing now? Uh, and I think that'll be so the kinds of things we'll see in the coming years in this space, trying to take uh, really large models, multimodal large models trained uh, in an unsupervised way or very partially supervised and adapting them with very little data, maybe well annotated, very small amounts of data, and do very well. And I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being a, a version of the future that we see, and we more or less abandon things like active learning. I, I wouldn't be so surprised. Yeah. Well, that that sounds like uh, I don't know somewhat bleak future for active learning, but it's a cycle, you know, who knows after, you know, maybe 15 years from now, we'll come back. It's not the first time that, that things like this are cyclical. So uh, I wouldn't be, you know, it's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, of course. No, that's understandable. The other sort of question I had in annotation is just that so annotations in medical is tricky, right? And then if you are thinking about uh, the annotation there are many different levels of the like the complexity of the task so like typical annotations you mentioned like right like that let's say maybe the tool tip or tool versus background maybe someone with little uh, understanding of the process 
can do it. Uh, versus when you are going more into the decision process, what's going on, the tool tissue interaction, what leads to a problematic situation, what is an rare anatomy that needed a slightly different approach for a particular surgical phase, etc. These needs then more and more complicated knowledge pattern, which probably only very few people in one location has, maybe the more senior surgeons. Of course, apart from the fact that their time is crucial, the other problem I see is that they are not trained for annotating video data, right? So that's not their training is. So how do we, how do you really approach this problem of complexity of the tasks at different level? It's a good question. So yeah, annotation, getting good annotations from physicians and experts is difficult. It's, as you said, they're not trained to do it. They don't really want to spend time doing this, which no one really does. And the more that I see now is that you you don't necessarily, I'm not sure that's the way we want to go, in fact. At least my feeling today is that what we're seeing from large language models is probably the way we should be approaching it, that we, are, we, we should be building zero-shot learning systems such that at test time, you show this is a, you know, one physician shows this is a proper, you know, interaction between this part of the anatomy, the instrument and the target zone or, 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 or defines it. And the model can, can understand what that looks like and, and its implications in the same way that large language models are doing that for, for statements that are, that are done, complex statements and potential uh, problem solving uh, questions. So of course, we still have a road to get there, but I think that that is probably the way we should be looking at it if we want to scale and to generalize in a way that makes our life a little bit easier. At least that's that's what I think are, are, are the interesting scientific questions in this space now, uh, because what what I've seen, or at least my experience has been just asking, is was this a a successful surgery, or was this a well-completed surgery? These are difficult questions for different surgeons to answer. They have different perspectives. They have different viewpoints. Style plays a role. There, there are many things that are are complex. Unless the the goals are extremely focused and specific, and that makes things difficult. That really makes things difficult. Just as a follow-up, because you are talking about the large language models and success of those models. Are not they primarily based on this massive amount of text data that humanity has generated? And yeah. we don't really have equivalent amount of surgical data for sure, right? No, no, of course. We don't have, we, we definitely, yeah. So if you take, uh, let's take cataract again, because that's like one of the super high volume cases. Yeah, you're still really far away from whatever the number they're training on today for, for a text. But at the same time, the kinds of questions that you would ask or the, the, the things you want your model, your surgery model, your large, let's call it large surgical model, or, well, would want to characterize is not as diverse. It's not as big and diverse as all text generated in humanity. 
So maybe maybe there's a sweet spot. And that so of course, if you're talking about a, a very rare surgery, then that's probably not gonna cut it. Um, but maybe uh, for large, large volume surgeries, there is a chance that um, we can get our methods, you know, close in that space and then do adjustments or fine tuning in some some form of minimal supervision. That's um, what I would I would go at. But I agree. I mean, I, I agree. We 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 still have work to do to 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 build these large representations in a way from from somewhat less data. Yeah. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. That at least if we can take care of the typical cases, if we can identify the typical cases, that's already a significant reduction to the overall volume, right? And yeah. Then- yeah. People's yeah. focus can be on the rare cases, on the not so typical situations, and that yeah. makes, makes sense. So, I guess at the start of the talk, like of the discussion, we were talking about the role of the director and the administrative staffs that you have to deal with versus the role of the PI. And sure, there are some administrative staffs around your grant and stuff, but nowhere comparable to the role of a director, I'm sure. So I guess maybe what is something that you believed as a PI five years ago, but then you had to unlearn to take the next step of becoming a director? Oof, what was the next step of becoming a director from PI? Uh, okay, so when you're a PI, you're basically continuously running a startup in a way. You get grants to get funding, you hire people, you do a project, and that, you know, that makes your cycle for the next funding round and so on. And that's your world, basically. And that's true. Um, at the, the level of the directorship, or at least what what I felt um, was, was lacking is you have to look beyond yourself as a PI and really see the vision for for everyone to some extent, and to also empower people and your peers around you. Because when you enter large structures or administrative structures that have a certain size, running it on your own is 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 typically not sustainable. And so that's something maybe I didn't have to unlearn, but uh, definitely had to learn to do uh, better than uh, you typically do when you, you start off with a, a research group of a few students here and there. Um, and um, But that's something you do with, with time and experience, um, understanding how to onboard people, how to provide a good, good directions, a good support when they need it, not from students, because your relation with a student is a very specific. It's a very specific relation, but rather with a peer, this is something that that uh, yeah, you 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 have to learn with time a little bit and experience. Yeah, even particularly not when things are going well, but rather when things are not going well, when there are issues, um, troubleshooting. Um, that's that's when. When things get fun, I guess. No, that that sounds, I guess, definitely fun, but also probably a lot of 
stressful people walk that you have to go through but i'm sure you are you are quite fine with people so some of the other computer scientists might have difficulties there <laughs> but it's... of the people question the other thing i wanted to really ask you about is something that we as researchers in the medical let's say medical technology medical imaging have to do is talk to clinicians and ideally make long-term productive uh, relation with clinicians where often the incentives do not align. So from your experience as PI, successful PI, then director, what are the sort of, I don't know, two or three key messages that you have learned and you can share with the listeners who are early in their career so that they can build long-term relationships with their clinical colleagues? Yeah, no. So I think I think that's a very important question. And, and actually, that was one of the main reasons I, I wanted to come to Bern was because uh, it's part of a medical faculty. So my peers are our clinicians, uh, head of clinics and so on. And it's, I think, very important to understand the clinical environment you're working towards to finding solutions. Um, so I think what's important when building clinical relations and maintaining them over time is to very early on focus on not necessarily many, but one or two unmet clinical needs that are the focus of what you you uh, you try to deliver in that relationship. And um, as a computer scientist or, uh, you know, someone from a technical background, I think we need to make the effort to learn the language. Uh, in fact, my, when I tell my, my PhD students and one of our, our semi-mottos here is that by the end of your PhD uh, in some technical field, you, you, you ought to be able to, to pass the Turing test which is that you go at a clinical conference and you talk to someone for 15 minutes and that person can't detect that you're not a physician like them. Um, after 15 minutes, things might get shaky. But the, I think that's really important that we as engineers, you know, make that step forward. It needs to come from us. Of course, it's great to see when, engineer, uh, when clinicians do the same. That's fantastic. But I think the, let's say the, the pressure on physicians today is so massive uh, with all healthcare, uh, healthcare system pressures that we have to help them in that context. And so what I really recommend is spending time in the clinics, spending time with clinical fellows at the same level as them so that they can grow together for a number of years. I think this is really valuable, understanding what's the unmet need, and also providing um, a long-term vision of what is needed or what are we trying to do here? Are we just pumping out papers or are we are we trying to get one thing into the clinic for them to play with and to treat people with? Yeah, that's really amazing. So you talked about the being in close proximity and sort of having a very close relation uh, in a professional sense uh, with the uh, clinical counterparts. And also whenever you are in a new collaboration, just identifying one or two unmet needs and seeing the vision of what in the end, ideally you should be delivering. That's really important. 
it's actually quite interesting that you are talking about this 15 minutes Turing test. This is the second time somebody in the podcast mentioned it. So uh, it was Anant Madhavushi from US and he mentioned that he takes it as a compliment if he goes to a conference, talks with other uh, oncologists and they ask him, where do you practice? And this is the second time you mentioned that. So it's definitely something, I guess, successful people think alike. So that's something for all our listeners to, to learn from is really going beyond your comfort zone and learning the language that others are uh, are talking about, especially in the clinical sense. Otherwise, it's not really a transdisciplinary research. Mm-hmm. Um, we are more or less towards the end of the session. And I have a traditional question that I often ask is basically, imagine that you have unlimited resources for the next five years, no administrative duties. You don't have to write grants. Worry about what are the three papers that your next PhD student need for graduating, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All those stuffs, and you can focus on just one problem. Uh, what would that be? That's a that's a wonderful question. I wake up thinking the same thing often. So, <laughs> um, I've had the pleasure of of doing things in the space of of diagnostics where. We took things from a a basic concept and pushed it into a a product. And I think what I would like to do is something to cover that ground from a low TRL level, translation readiness level, to something that's quite deep along that spectrum, but for something which is in the the intervention space. I think, um, I don't know exactly which one, what space, uh, what application, or what technology, and so on, but... I think really if I with infinite time and resources I would I would like to to do something like that. I would like to to go to the next level of difficulty to to doing it. Not that diagnostics is is necessarily easy, but you have different constraints, very different constraints and in surgery and interventions you typically have very different kinds of constraints and I have to say that with with everything we're seeing with the regulatory barriers of today in Europe at least um, things are not looking very, very good uh, in general from my point of view. So that won't make things any easier by all means. Um, but uh, but I still think it's it's worth uh, worth looking into, worth trying. All right. So in that case, I wish you those five years <laughs> where you can focus on completely one thing. And we really see some of the early success stories of surgical data science translating into the clinic, maybe into the eye surgeries and really make a big impact there. On that note, thank you so much for your time, Rafael. It's been a pleasure talking to you. As always, I learned a lot from your perspectives on many different parts of surgical data science with a focus of eye surgery, how to really be a successful translational researcher. And I I wish you all the best for the week. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me again, Angara.